The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. We're continuing this week in our series. Uh, We're focused on the miracles of Jesus, okay? So why are we doing that? We believe that by studying these accounts, we can grow in our understanding of who God is and what he is like. Uh, The more that we see how good and powerful and compassionate he is, the hope is that our love for him and our trust in him will grow as well. Jesus told his disciples in John 14 that uh, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And so when we see Jesus respond to a person or a situation, we are seeing the very response of God. Now, these interactions that we're looking at, they can also teach us a lot about ourselves. Because in these accounts recorded for us in the Gospels, we see Jesus help those on the absolute fringes of society, as well as those on the very top rung of the social ladder. Okay, so if we are humble and thoughtful as we study together, we will see the needs that we all share as humans, regardless of our situation in this life or our station in this life. And we'll also see the answer to those needs, which can only be found in Christ. So we're going to read Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 together. And we're going to see how Jesus responds to four guys interrupting his sermon by tearing a hole in the roof. Okay? So this is good. All right. I'm in Mark chapter 2. Hope you're there, starting in verse 1. Real quick, if you don't have a Bible, we always have lots to give away for free. If you don't have something with you right now to follow along as we study God's Word, we will have the verses on the screens for you, okay? I bought you a couple extra seconds there to find Mark. Here we go. Chapter 2, verse 1. We had come back to Capernaum several days afterward. It was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get him, get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Praise God for his word. Amen. All right, so we're going to start back at verses 1 through 4. Now, if you guys are willing to do a little bit of work with me here, I think we can settle uh, one of the silly debates that we tend to get distracted by within the church. Okay, so many have asked the question, how is it that we are supposed to be the light of the world that Jesus called us to be. Is it more important that we preach the good news of the gospel or that we show the good news of the gospel by meeting people's needs and and doing acts of mercy? Now, if you've been around here any amount of time, this is probably one of those times where you would expect me to say both. 
And that is true to a degree. The faithful proclamation of the gospel should always be accompanied by the good works that God prepared beforehand for us to accomplish. It says in Ephesians, okay? But I think a very strong case can be made that one of these does, in fact, supersede the other in priority, okay? Um, Many commentators point out that the likely reason that Jesus had moved his ministry inside at this point, why he was in this house, was because in the streets, it had become all about people basically just thronging him all the time looking to be healed. And we see in, uh, that Mark tells us in verse 2 that we just read that what he was doing in the house is he was speaking the word to them. Okay? Now, so far, all I have is probably a stretch and an inference. It's not really strong enough, I don't think, to make a definitive statement about the importance of preaching the truth of the gospel over potentially meeting the needs of suffering people as a reflection of the gospel. But let's look a little earlier in Mark's gospel to see if we can decide if it is reasonable to assume that Jesus was indeed in this house because he saw the teaching of his message as his highest priority. Okay, so I'm going to go to Mark chapter 1. Now, remember where we're at. We're in Mark 2, 1 through 12, so I'm not going to some oblong, weird place. This is actually just a little bit backwards in the flow of context of where we're at. Okay, so I'm going to read you Mark uh, 1, 35 through 38. Okay, In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. He said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. What do you say? We're going to go to these other towns so that I can preach because that's what I I came for. Now, we don't know the exact words of Jesus when he was teaching in the house, in, in this account where these guys tear the roof off, but we do know that everything Jesus taught throughout his ministry, it tied back to one central message that we see summarized just a few verses earlier in Mark 1 from what I just read you. I'm going to read you verses 14 and 15 now of Mark 1. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so this message that Jesus came to preach, this message that he said, all right, let's go over to these towns so that I can preach, so I can do the thing I came to do. And I think just a few verses later, we see him now in the house speaking the word of God. I think it helps us to come to a conclusion about what Jesus prioritized. And the reality is this summary message I just read you in Mark 14, uh, 1, 14 and 15, uh, about the gospel and the kingdom of God, to repent and believe the gospel, this is the message of the whole Bible. That God made us for perfect, uninhibited relationship with him. That we have all sinned and tried to be our own God instead. And by doing that, we've separated ourselves from our creator. But Jesus came to redeem us and restore us to that eternal purpose we were made for, to be loved by God and to love him in return. Now, all of this is to say, what I'm building a case for here is that, yes, God is love. A lot of people know that the Bible says that, but they don't really know what that means. But God is love, and and yes, Jesus does reveal to us who God is, and yes, everything God does is the most loving thing that can be done. But what I'm calling your attention to is that Jesus saw his first purpose and the most loving thing he could do 
was to preach the need for repentance and to teach the good news of his kingdom. Now, let's balance this out. And I want you please not to misunderstand me or or think that I'm overstating something I'm not trying to. Because I'm not trying to minimize the importance of loving people by meeting their felt needs in hopes that their hearts will be open to us speaking them to the greatest need that we all have, which is to be reconciled to God. Now, James commented on this pretty clearly uh, in James 2, starting in verse 14. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith that has no works is dead, being by itself. Okay? And so a lot of times there's this tension within the church about, well, if, if we get too distracted with mercy ministry and meeting people's uh, felt needs, we're going we're gonna to somehow miss the, the, the primary importance of preaching the gospel. But, and, and that's a real risk. That does happen. But on the other side, and trying to guard against that, you could end up on the other end of the spectrum not doing any of these basic things that James said is required for us to go out into this world and walk in love and be the light that Jesus called us to be. So you need both. But I think it's important for us to understand where each one sits in the mind of Jesus. Okay, He was healing. He was feeding. He was doing all this stuff. But also, he made concession and made a way where he ended up in this house, out of the street, so that he could do this thing, which he said was the thing he came to do, which is to preach repentance and the good news of the kingdom, his gospel. Amen? And so th- this idea of you know, meeting the needs of people, meeting physical needs, uh, but that, that being a, a, a hopeful, you know, hopefully opening up a door in their heart so that we can speak to the spiritual need we all share, this is... Much of the philosophy that drives how we do Wednesdays and Fridays when we take teams out on the streets for ministry. Because we believe if we just go out and preach to hungry people, if we just preach to hungry people, we are not loving them well. But if we just feed hungry people a physical meal, we are also not loving them well. Now, some of you may be thinking, but (laughs) the gospel is offensive, especially to many modern ears, especially to a Western individualized culture, especially to a culture that has been baptized now in this idea that um, you can't throw a guilt trip on me. Uh, I, you know, I'm going to determine what's right and wrong for me. Who else could possibly have the authority to come into my sphere and, and determine that? And so the gospel does. The gospel straight says, <laughs> uh, actually, you are not the determining factor in what's right and wrong, but God who created all things is, and you have violated his law. Uh, and that's offensive. It starts, the gospel starts with the need for repentance. And so if we're being honest right here, I hope we are, we're thinking through these things, it, it can be hard for us to find an opening to go there with people, right? Um, hey, how you doing? Oh, the weather's been so nice. You're actually condemned to hell because of your sin, right? <laughs> no, that, that's, it's tough. It's tough. And because of that, because of the reality of how difficult it can be, uh, especially in the context we find ourselves. And I think all of us throughout church history have kind of been whiners. I think we all kind of think we all have it the hardest. You know, every century is like, well, well, I know, I know it was tough back then, but now it's really hard. I mean, yeah, sure. There's, there's different challenges to the gospel throughout um, time, but basically we're always dealing with the same problem. We're dealing with the same problem, the same lie that our parents, first parents dealt with in the garden 
Everybody is convinced that God's holding some good thing from them, and if they submit to him, they're going to miss out on something. And they need to be convinced that God is the great thing that they were made for, uh, and that the way to him is through Christ. Um, we, we all need to be convinced of, of our lack of godness, and that we are mere humans uh, who need to be in submission to the actual God. And so this has never been an easy message to preach. It's never been easy to be faithful in the call to take this gospel as light into the world. Um, it's not easy, but Jesus didn't just ask us to do it. He also said he would go with us, and he would be with us, and his power would be for us as we go. And so uh, that takes, should take all the shakes away, right? Because if he's in the mix, we're all right. It's going to be okay. He's helping us. Uh, because the gospel is so offensive, it, it can be tempting to go with the well-intentioned but inaccurate philosophy that we can preach the gospel and use words if necessary. Um, if you've got that bumper sticker, I'm sorry, okay? But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and come against it <laughs> uh, full force here. So here's the thing. Being kind to people, whether it's on the streets doing outreach or at your job or at your school or at the grocery store, being kind to people is not the highest expression of love. The highest expression of love is telling them of their need for Jesus and his willingness to receive them if they will humbly acknowledge their sin and surrender to him. That is the most loving thing we can do. Uh, Jesus is God in the flesh. God is love. Jesus prioritized the preaching and teaching of this gospel message above all else. That's, what, that's the premise I'm building off of. We, we understand how we should rank these things. What is most loving by looking where? Into ourselves to the culture at large, or do we look to God? Or do we look to what we see in Christ, what we see him prioritizing? Preaching the gospel is loving. Sometimes offending people is loving. Now, there are those who hear that and they're like, yes, because of their personality type, they really like offending people. Okay, so I'm going to love everybody, right? And they're just, they're ready to drop bombs. Well, <laughs> That is not the right spirit to go out at this. Uh, we have to make sure all that we're doing is undergirded actually by, first of all, a love for God, uh, but then also a love for people, that it's not some self-validating uh, ego boost when we go out and, and kind of from a self-righteous pedestal cast the gospel down on people. That's not the way the gospel should be shared. The gospel should be shared uh, from one beggar to another, uh, from one person that understands the depth of their sin and the beautiful uh, majesty of God's grace to another, okay? So that's, that's super duper important. Um, now, one way that we do this when, when we're out doing outreach, and, and so I, I've had interactions outside of that context where this has been possible, I'm just kind of, for some of you, I know you're sitting here, you're hearing me, you're like, yeah, okay, I see that Jesus really cared about preaching the gospel. He saw that as the most loving thing he could be doing. But man, it's really tough. It's really tough for me to think about how in my daily life I get into situations or I have open doors to be able to do this. And, and you're thinking about maybe people you know that you know don't know the Lord, and, and you would like to have a gospel conversation with them, but you're running the tape in your head of how normal conversations go, and you're like, where would I insert, uh, hey, let's talk about the meaning of life and, you know, like some real deep spiritual stuff. It's, it can be tough. I get that. But one way that we do it is, is by praying the gospel. Uh, learning how to pray the gospel is important. Um, if, if you've been out there on the streets with me before, you, you've probably heard me do this. Um, the, the, the truth is many people will shut you down if they think you're trying to talk to them about what they would call religion, right? That's one of the no-nos at dinner, right? We don't talk politics. We don't talk religion. What's the other one? I can't remember. Anyways, not important. Uh, 
the bottom line is a lot of times if, as soon as somebody smells that we're heading towards a talk about Jesus, they're, you know, they're going to pretend to feign or get the fake phone call or they just you know, get rude or whatever happens. They're going to back out of the situation slowly uh, somehow. So I, I get that. I know that's a real thing. But um, people many times are opposed to those kind of conversations. But, but in, in my experience, many times people will allow you to pray for them. People are hungry to have somebody pray for them. Many times they will receive that uh, if you ask them. And, uh, you know, to, to give you an accurate picture, so I know some of you probably haven't seen this done. Uh, the, the prayers that I'm talking about praying, when I'm talking about praying gospel prayers, and I know I'm talking about it starts with repentance, and that's, that's true and all of that, but I want to give you an example of what these prayers are not like, okay? So don't freak out. What I'm not doing is walking up to people, grabbing them by the side of the face and going, Lord, how bless this spawn of Satan, God, yeah! You know, that's... <laughs> That's not the kind of stuff I'm doing out on the street or in the grocery store, right? Help them because they're condemned to hell. Ha! You know, I'm not, it's not, I don't ha when I preach. Anyways, but even, even when I pray uh, the gospel out in the streets, that's, that's not how it looks, okay? And I'm, I'm just asking you also to not do that, all right? Um, we, the ha doesn't help. But also, you know, <laughs> there's a way to pray the gospel uh, that under, you know, takes into consideration wisdom and uh, the, the ability to come at it with, with love. So oftentimes I will pray something like, you know, Lord, thank you that even though each one of us are imperfect sinners, all of us have sinned against you. You sent Jesus to live the life we couldn't, to, to die the death we should have in our place for our sins. Thank you that Christ also rose from the grave just like he said he would, and that if we will trust you by faith, we can be sons and daughters of God. Thank you that that's true, Lord. Please help us live in light of it. Please draw us closer to you each day. We all need that. I'll pray like that. And so in doing, and, and also I'm asking, you know, that's just a little piece of it. You know, normally I'm asking what they need prayer for. Uh, and, and so I'm praying for that, but I'm, I'm, I'm working in the gospel into those prayers because uh, I believe the gospel has power. I believe the gospel message itself is anointed with power. And so when, when we're praying that over people, those seeds and that power is going in there. And, and man, um, I just know, I, I know that God can do uh, things with those seeds that we would never possibly be able to imagine. And so there's, to some degree, there's just in boldness and in faith and in trust in God's ability to do, and that's not to say I've never prayed that and have somebody clearly, after I'm done, like be interested to talk about what I just prayed about. And sometimes now the door's open. I got it all out. They didn't get to run. I just got you with the gospel. So now let's talk about that. Do you know what I mean? How do, what do you think about Jesus, right? And so Learning how to pray the gospel in, in succinct ways that make sense is, is really helpful um, <clears throat> in being able to open that door sometimes. So uh, all of this thus far is, is to show you that Jesus saw his mission of preaching the gospel as his first priority. That's a big premise I'm bringing out of these first couple verses, and thus we should too, okay? Um, but he never did that at the exclusion of kindness and, and meeting people's secondary needs as well. Those things go together hand in hand. And sometimes we can, the, the, the opening, the, the doorway into the heart to be able to speak about those spiritual needs is by being willing to sacrifice and pay whatever price is necessary to love people and meet their physical needs. And I'm not just talking about a, a bowl of food to somebody that's hungry. This may be you taking the time to notice somebody at your workplace is, is emotionally distraught or struggling. And instead of doing what most of us would tend to do because we fear awkwardness more than death, you know, we'd be like, ooh, looks like they're having a hard time. I'm going to go this way. You know what I mean? But like pray, ask for God to help you and wade into that thing. Ask a question, open the door. You never know how God could use you there, right? Offer to pray. 
Amen. Now, I know that some of you, even though I think I've done a pretty stellar job building this case, uh, some of you might still be resistant to it, and that's okay. Um, I know some of you might be thinking, well, okay, this isn't computing for me. How can preaching the gospel to someone be the most loving thing I can do if it offends them? For some of you, there's a real like disconnect there, and I think that's because for many people in our culture, and for many of us, we've just been raised in this idea that to disagree with someone, to offend somebody, um, just can't be loving. Well, I don't think Jesus believes that. I think part of our issue is that we struggle to believe that we really struggle to believe this basic premise that every single person's greatest need is Jesus and his gospel. I think maybe we would nod our heads in this context at that, but then when we take that idea and translate it out into the real world and we see all of the different variety, the kaleidoscope of suffering that is the world around us, I'm not sure we always are fully bought into this idea that the greatest need anybody has is Jesus and his gospel. I think sometimes we also struggle to believe that the gospel truly has the power to change even the most resistant person. Addressing these things, assessing ourselves and, and what we believe about these things, actually running ourselves through the gristmill on that would help us see if that's something that's a stumbling block to us, really engaging in this love-motivated mission of preaching the good news of the gospel. I believe that the more we truly buy into the supremacy of Christ as the great physician who can bring a cure to all the sickness that sin has caused in our world, but also in our hearts, the more willing we will become to make a ruckus if it means getting people to him. Let me call your attention again to verse 4, if you would. It says, being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Okay, so here's the deal. I, I don't know how many of you have a picture in your mind of what this looks like. So you've got uh, these first century homes. They're kind of, you know, like something maybe you've seen in, in, in the Southwest or pictures of the Southwest a lot of times a stone-based structure or some type of mortar structure, and then a flat roof that was normally made with like thatch and different layers of soil or whatever, you know, whatever product would, would be the most, you know, let through the least amount of water. And typically that, that roof would be flat and used as kind of an outside terrace, another living space. Some of you are thinking like, oh, that sounds, sounds pretty rad. Uh, it probably was. I mean, you know, rooftop space is cool, so that's awesome. But typically they would have an outside staircase to get up there, okay? So... Um, probably what happened is these guys came up, tried to get into the house, the crowds, you know, everybody's trying to get in and get close enough to hear what Jesus is saying. So they took their buddy up the steps and, uh, just to make sure, you know, the, the NAS, some translations kind of water it down a little bit. The NASB says they dug into it, but literally they tore a hole in this roof. They did serious damage to this thing to get it wide enough to drop their buddy down on this pallet to get him in front of Jesus, okay? So um, <laughs> I just, I, I think it's fair to say these guys were willing to offend some people and mess some stuff up to get their friend to Jesus. They definitely were willing to offend the homeowner. Uh, <laughs> you know, they were, they were willing to offend everybody who, you know, didn't think of tearing a hole in the roof to get to Jesus. You know, everyone else had been standing in line for however many hours, and these guys just jump up there and, and cut in line, basically. So 
And, and, you know, just imagine you're in there, right? And you hear, a, you hear a thud, you hear another thud. It's like, what's going on? Jesus is trying to teach, like, who is that? Who would be that disrespectful? The next thud is a hand coming through, right? And then a foot and stuff's falling into the room. I mean, this, just imagine it happening here, you know? All of a sudden, an axe comes through the dome, man. Somebody's like, I heard, I heard you can hear about Jesus in here. Doors was locked. Let me in. I mean, we'd all be, ooh, we'd be all shook up, right? So this, these guys just apparently didn't care. They didn't care. They were about to get their friend to Jesus, flat out, right? Now, what am I seeing in that? Well, what I'm saying to you is I, just, I wish we could get some holy boldness and be willing to cause a ruckus to get people to Jesus, I wish we could be less offended or less worried sometimes about offending people. I wish we could be less worried sometimes about all the things that we get worried about. Uh, these guys, they, they were on a mission. They were going to get their friend to Jesus, and they tore some stuff up to do it. And, and what I'm asking you is, will you pray for a, a sense of urgency? Will you pray for an urgency that will shake us from the stupor of all of our temporal distractions and all our comfortable sensibilities? Because there are going to be occasions Many times, if not all the time, if we're going to move into this world with a love-motivated boldness to preach the offensive gospel of the kingdom, we're going to have to get past being worried about causing a ruckus. Are we going to let love for people and a desire to get them to Jesus cause us to be really to knock some holes in some roofs? And if you sit here and say, look, I know I'm not. I wouldn't have cut a hole in nobody's roof. I'm not about to do that, okay? Maybe that's you today. Then I'm asking you, does this sound right to you? Do you think this should just come down to personality types? And, well, I'm more meek, so I don't know. Or do you, think, do you think part of why Mark recorded this story was to show us what kind of tenacity we should have about getting people to Jesus? Now, again, i got to balance everything because <laughs> I know y'all. I'm not advocating us just being wild for the sake of being wild, okay? That's, that's not going to be... Helpful, But what I am saying is that if we really love people and we really believe that without Jesus, they have no hope, either here or in eternity, then we will be willing to risk our egos, our reputations, being rejected, and a whole lot more in order to preach this precious truth to those who need to hear it. That's what I'm saying. Are we willing to make a ruckus? I want to be. I think I am. <laughs> I'm trying right now. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, man, isn't this presumptive? I mean, we live in a pluralistic society, and, and you know, there's, there's certain benefits to that. And are, are we assuming too much to say that every person's greatest need is to have their sin forgiven and to be made right with God through faith in Jesus? Is that, is that too much of a presumption? Well, I think verse 5 can help us with that. Let's look at that again together. So these guys tear a hole in the roof, drop their buddy down, and Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, can you imagine the awkward stares and the faces of the people in this room when Jesus looks at this paralyzed guy that just dropped down on a stretcher from the roof, and he says this to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. Right? I mean, <laughs> we should really start expecting Jesus to answer our prayers in ways far different than we would expect, right? 
I mean, these guys lower their paralyzed buddy down, and the first thing they get from Jesus is, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, a lot of scholars, this isn't definitive, but a lot of scholars think and say that this was actually Peter's house that they were in. It was his home. And to be quite honest, whether it was his house or not, I'm so, so surprised that we don't have recorded here in Mark that after Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, that Peter didn't like inch over like, um, Jesus, uh, real, real quick here, a uh, small detail, uh, the guy's actually paralyzed. Right? Because Peter, Peter was always like foot and mouth. He was action man, right? Now, you can say what you want about Peter. Um, you know, Jesus picked him as the head of the disciples. So, you know, there's something to be said about being willing to make a ruckus, jump out the boat and do something and figure out the details later. So whatever. Do, do what you want with that. But I'm, I'm just surprised Jesus wasn't like, oh, actually, actually, master, he's, par- he's paralyzed. You know, because <laughs> Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine everyone in the room? Like, does he, does he not know? What, what do we got here? What's, what's happening? Okay. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing. Guys, I'm sure of this. Jesus did know the guy was paralyzed. But he also knew that this man's greatest need wasn't to walk. Because without being made righteous by God's grace, this guy could walk out of that house that day and stay on a path straight to hell. And here's what we also need to know, guys. This is not a one-time thing either. See, the greatest need of every human is not a one-time realization of our need for repentance and an acceptance of God's grace through the gospel. This is our greatest need every day and every time we come to Jesus. So many of us come to Jesus asking for healing for our bodies or for our marriages or for provision or for him to heal our loneliness or or whatever the request is, not understanding that it is often these struggles that God is allowing in order to shake us awake to our need for him first. It is oftentimes that he's allowing that because without that, you won't be desperate enough to to pursue something. You'll just fall into that comfortable rut of existence that humans seem so prone to fall into. Just, Just happy about being fulfilled with all the little temporal trappings of this life. Not seeking for this greater and and best thing. Um, And and the reality is so many of you have been frustrated with God because he hasn't fixed the thing you've asked him to fix. But friends, until you realize that your greatest need lies beyond that thing that you need, need or want fixed, if God gives that to you, all he's doing is selling you short. That wouldn't be being a good father to you. That wouldn't be loving you or helping you. That... That would be, you know, that'd be just giving you gummy bears when what you need to eat, man, is some kale. Get you some Brussels sprouts. Do something that's actually going to help you. (laughs) But boy, we like gummy bears, don't we? That wasn't a thought out analogy in the notes, okay? So do what you want with that, all right? I think you understand what I'm saying. God's a good father, okay? And there's a lot of things you might be asking him for right now that you're frustrated with him that he hasn't brought to fruition, that, that what you need to understand is he's trying to press you past that thing you think is going to fix everything. I mean, don't you think the paralytic thought that? If I can just get dropped down, if my buddies can get me down, don't you think his four friends thought that? If we can just get him down there and he can walk, all of his troubles are going to be over. I mean, could you, could you see yourself thinking that as someone that didn't have the use of their legs in the first century? It's rough being ha- having a physical disability now. But think about then. You had one option. Basically, you're a beggar. Unless you had family that was real committed to taking care of you. 
And so he definitely had this struggle in his mind, surely, of thinking that if I can just get my legs under me, then all the rest of, all my troubles will be gone. But Jesus knew what his greatest need was. And he dealt with that. We need the gospel every minute of every day because the gospel is the only way we can dare to admit how broken and sinful we really are without being crushed by hopeless despair. You see, the gospel brings light to this otherwise undiscoverable truth. I'm telling you right now, the gospel is the only way we can get this truth, that even though we are more sinful than we are even aware, we are also more loved and accepted than we can even imagine. That truth allows us to really actually start to live authentic and be real. That allows us to walk through this life without having tried to fake and wear masks and come up with some other sense of affirmation, some other sense of worth and value. When we can stare full face in the mirror and say, yes, I, I, I am sinful and more sinful than I even understand. But at the very same time, know the truth of the gospel is I'm also more loved than I could ever possibly imagine. The gospel is scandalous. It is counterintuitive. And yet, it is the great jewel we've been handed to share with the world. Experiencing the grace and forgiveness of Christ is it's even the greatest need of those who have been victimized by others. And um, this, this may be hard for you to come along with and, and stretch on. And if you're not there by the time I'm done making this point, then I, I want you to know, A, I'm, I'm here to talk about it. Um, and, and not in a, in a threatening way or like, well, I'll just convince you. But I know that this is hard and this is a difficult pill to swallow. But I know that for some of you, you might be thinking, okay, so you're trying, you're trying to convince me that the greatest need of every human is to have their sins forgiven and to have the, the grace of God, the affirmation of God that comes through relationship with God by the gospel, okay? But what about somebody who has been sinned against? How is then it their greatest need for their sins to be forgiven? Well, here we go. The reason why I'm saying that, and I believe the Bible teaches that, is because it is only in truly understanding how much it costs God to forgive me that I can possibly consider following his example and erasing the debt in my heart of those who have sinned against me. It is only when I realize how much it cost God to forgive me that I could possibly begin to understand that there's a way that I can cancel the debt for those that have sinned against me. Now, even when we decide... I know that's tough. Even when we decide that freedom is really found in forgiveness, we will need not just the example of God's grace to follow, but also the power of God's grace to follow through. And so this is not something that we're going to do on our own. This is not something, this is not heart healing uh, doesn't happen by positive thinking uh, or self-actualization. It happens by the power of God. And that through his gospel. Now, some of you are paying close attention to this. I know because we've got a room full of Bible scholars here. And so some of you have noticed something strange in this account. So let's talk about it. Now, some of you know that the Bible teaches there is no forgiveness of sins aside from repentance. That is a consistent teaching throughout the Bible. 
And yet we have no record here of this paralytic repenting, do we? And yet Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. So what do we have going on here? Well, let's, let's just say right here at the outset that uh, not everything, Je- you know, John said not everything Jesus said and did is recorded because if we tried to record every word, it would fill all the books in the world and, you know, you get the idea. Some things do remain in mystery, but I think Mark gave us maybe some trail markers here to understand what's going on. Because here's what we know. What we know isn't happening is that Jesus would not be contradicting all of the rest of what Scripture teaches here regarding repentance and forgiveness of sin. So I think it's quite possible that Mark tells the story like he does so that we can understand what is happening with that. Okay, so the next three verses, they show us something about Jesus. And here's the thing. We aren't totally sure if this was power that he had uh, because of his divine nature, or simply uh, it was something because, out of his human nature, but empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you're asking me, I would probably lean towards the latter, but there's good argumentation for both sides, and it's not really the point. So I'm going to read you the next three verses and, and see what we're looking at. This is verses 6 through 8, okay? But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? See, Jesus knew the inner contemplations of the hearts of these scribes, didn't he? Knew exactly what they were thinking. And this is not the only occasion we see that Jesus has this ability. And so it stands to reason that as this paralytic was lowered down into the room where he was preaching, that something, Jesus perceived something, a humble repentance in the heart of the paralyzed man that caused him to be able to grant forgiveness. Mark gives us the background and kind of lets us behind the curtain of what Jesus perceived in the scribes. He doesn't tell us what he saw in the heart of this paralyzed man, but it's quite possible that what he saw there was a realization of his need for repentance and that Jesus met him there in that way. And and I would just say to you, uh, I would ask you, like, isn't... (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Isn't isn't that amazing? What does that say about God's appetite for dispensing grace? What does that say? It's the same thing I pointed out to you with the centurion a couple weeks ago, right? Because the centurion understood Jesus had the authority to heal his servant, but there is no way he understood the totality of who Jesus was and is. He couldn't have. But our merciful master was willing to meet him where he was. See, God is not as nitpicky and stingy with his grace as we often are. Many times we are tempted to assume somebody is is devoid of God's grace unless they affirm all of our personal theological and doctrinal preferences. But thankfully, God pursues us with his grace and he delights in pouring it out on us. He doesn't just sit back and wait for us to have everything figured out perfectly before bestowing it on us. Because friends, let's be honest, if God was sitting back waiting for us to have everything perfectly figured out before he would give grace, how many of you in here think you would have tasted God's grace? How many of you are very, very sure you would not have? Right? Yeah, me, for sure. Because I know I don't have it all figured out. If that was the case, no one would ever have it. And this makes a lot of sense when we just think of the nature of what grace is, when you remember that grace is God's unearned favor that saves us, and it's also his power that sustains us. The whole thing is that it's based not on our works, but on his great love and mercy for us. 
So I think it'd be easy for us to give the scribes a real hard time here, but honestly, the scribes weren't wrong in why they were upset. They really weren't. See, because they knew that only God can forgive sins. And that meant that Jesus was claiming here divine authority. Uh, So they weren't wrong about that. And I think it's interesting, there's oftentimes critics of Jesus and the Bible and Christianity that will say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, dear friend, you just, I mean, sometimes you've got to read a little more careful. um, And sometimes you have to, like, understand the meaning under the meaning. But Jesus' enemies definitely knew he claimed to be God. This was one of the moments uh, where they started thinking about what they were going to do to him because he was claiming to be God. Uh, but that's, that's where the scribes got it wrong. They failed to understand that Jesus, that he was claiming to be God because he was God. And that he was the Savior and the Messiah that they had been told for hundreds of years was coming. They were, they were upset about the right thing, but they missed that he had the right to do this. That's, their eyes were blinded to that. Uh, verse 9 is interesting, and, and there's not a lot of agreement on, on the answer to the question. Let, let's just read that. He says, so G, this is Jesus' response about them nitpicking in their heart and, and, and judging him. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? Okay, so there's not a lot of agreement on the answer to the question. <laughs> Which one's easier? He doesn't totally make it obvious. I mean, I, you know, initial reading, I kind of thought it was somewhat common sense, but then I thought harder. I'm like, ooh, maybe it's not as obvious. So now, now I don't know. So, but there's a lot of commentators that agree. There's a lot of commentators that say we don't know the answer to which one is easier to say. So it's probably the safest place to land is that Jesus kept that answer for himself. He gave us something to think about, you know, when we're bored. Uh, which one is it, right? So, but uh, I want I'll just unpack some thoughts for you, and, and you can think about it and, and pray about it later. Okay. Um, so in 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 this in this thinking of the sense of like what is easier to say right there in that moment, it it, it could be said that your sins are forgiven is easier, right? Because there's no external way to verify that it actually happened. So. Was it easier for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, or tell the paralytic to, to rise up and walk? There, there, there's a case made that, well, it's easier to say in that moment, your sins are forgiven, because who can check? Right? But, in terms of which one is actually more difficult to accomplish, there had been many people healed by God throughout history, right? Uh, but the full and final forgiveness of sins was going to cost Jesus everything. As he stood in our place, taking the punishment for the rebellion of the world upon the cross. And so, which one was Jesus thinking about? I'm not sure, but it's fun, it's fun for us to think about, isn't it? Uh, but the reality is, the reality is, if you haven't found anything to be excited about in this sermon yet, I want you to try this one on for size, okay? Jesus made this real easy for us. Because whether or not we can figure out which one he thinks is easier, it really doesn't matter as much when you think about this truth. He did them both. What? Come on now. He did them both. So we can debate about which one he thought was easier, but guess what? They're both within the purview of his power and authority. Neither one. He didn't break a sweat on either one. Come on now. Let me read you verses 10 through 12, because you're not excited about it enough yet. I can tell. 
But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. What happened? He got up immediately, picked up the pallet, and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. (laughs) Ha ha! He went ahead and did them both, friends. He did them both. So everyone would know that he was the son of man and that healing this man spiritually and physically was well within the domain of his power and authority. He let him know. And, and, and you may not know this, you may not have noticed this, but this, this designation, son of man, this is Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself throughout the gospels. And, and this right here is the first time we see him do it in the gospel of Mark where he calls himself the son of man. But why? What, what does that mean? Does it mean, you know, that he was born of Mary? What's he talking about? Well, it could mean a lot of things, and that's another thing people debate about. But it's really, when you zero in, it's a reference to, to a messianic uh, passage of Scripture in Daniel. I'm in Daniel 7, okay? I'm going to read you this. It says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That's the son of man. That's who he is. That's what he's talking about. Now, to call himself king and Messiah was perfectly accurate. That was done in other places. But to the hearers of that day, these titles, king, Messiah, others, it would have conjured images of of overthrowing Rome and ending their earthly oppression by being subjugated by the Romans. But Jesus, he didn't use those titles as much. He used this son of man title because he wanted everyone to know that the deliverance he brought was much grander and the freedom he was going to accomplish was much broader than just overthrowing Rome. Rome was a footnote and a blip on the radar compared to what Jesus actually came to accomplish. Through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his triumphant resurrection, he was going to overthrow sin and death itself and every force of darkness that would ever try to stand in the way of God's plan to spend eternity with the children who he loves. The Son of Man do all that, has done all that. And we stand in the wake of his victory today. And so what are we going to do with that is the question. I hope we'll make a ruckus. I hope we'll pray. I hope we'll be self-aware. I hope we will look at ourselves and, 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 and understand what fears and what, what anxieties keep us from engaging in this beautiful mission of being the light of the world and preaching this precious gospel to the ends of the earth. What, am I, what lie am I believing? Am I, am I not really believing what Jesus said, that he would be with me by the power of his Holy Spirit, and so I have nothing to fear? Am I not believing the power of the gospel to transform even the hardest heart? Where where is my lack of faith? God, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. Will we pray these kinds of prayers? Will we humbly acknowledge this need for us to be shaken, to be motivated by love once again? I pray that we will be. May we rejoice in the glorious victory of Jesus, this Son of Man. May we realize our greatest need is to bow our knee to Him, that we may receive grace and forgiveness from Him, 
and go forth with love-motivated boldness to preach this truth to the ends of the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you. We thank you for those four guys that were bold enough to drag their friend up on a roof and start knocking a hole in it. Thank you for what that says to us. Thank you for how it challenges us, God. Thank you that Mark recorded this response from Jesus so that we could see, so we could understand what should be first when it comes to the priority we have, how it is we go about accomplishing this mission of being ambassadors of reconciliation to the world, God. All of us have been tempted to avoid the awkwardness of your gospel, and we confess that. All of us have been tempted to just be nice and hope that somehow they get the message through that, but God, we know. We know that your gospel has to be upon our lips. We have to be looking actively for opportunities to share the beautiful truth that every single one of us is in desperate need of grace, that we all need a Savior, and that you, Lord Jesus, are that Savior. God, I ask you right now to shake us. Shake the dust of complacency from us. Shake the dust of us being satisfied with all our temporal distractions. God, give us eternal vision. Help us to see things the way you see it. Help us to see people the way you see them. Break our hearts, O God, for those who do not yet know there is hope in you, who walk around fumbling in the dark, groping and and trying to find some way to exist and have meaning. God, may we have compassion upon those that have yet to hear and understand and believe your gospel. God, may we treat this great message like the jewel that it is, the precious resource that it is. Lord, we love you. I know sometimes our actions don't show it, but we do. You loved us first. You showed us what love looks like. And and God, we want to follow in your footsteps, but we know we also need your power and your help to follow through. So please, God, just please anoint us. Help us. Help us to be faithful. We want to be faithful to what it is you've called us to do. We want to be bold in the preaching of your gospel. We don't want to be foolish. We don't want to be offensive for being offensive's sake, but God, we don't want to shy away from telling people the most loving truth that can be told. God, I ask that right now you would stir in the hearts of your people, that you would, you would bring faces and names to them. God, I ask that you would give a burning passion in their heart that, that they wouldn't be able to settle themselves until they go and obey you and tell these people that you love that there's hope in Christ. May you do that for all of us, God. We ask that you would just continually, Lord, from here, keep drawing us ever closer to yourself because close to you is where we have peace and joy and hope and purpose. We've all been distracted. We've all tried to seek it out other places and we know that those pursuits are futile. Thank you, Lord, that you're patient and long-suffering with us. We love you. We worship you. We exalt you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.